Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Full Stack Leader. I am here this week with Matt Shaw of Wave, based out of Austin. It's a startup that focuses on creating interactive virtual concerts. So they're doing some amazing stuff in this world. Matt, it's great to have you with us. Thanks. Glad to be here. Awesome. And, and you're the CTO at Wave, correct? Yes. And what does the CTO do at a startup like Wave? Well, on small companies, sometimes the CTO role is kind of perfunctory. But I have a background of being a CTO at much larger companies. And part of the goal is as we get larger, we will need more of a CTO role. But generally, the difference between a CTO role and, say, VP of engineering is that my focus is more generally more upwards as far as business dealings and business negotiations. But at the same time, I partner directly with our VP of engineering to work with the entire engineering staff to achieve all of the company's goals. Awesome. Yeah. And tell us a little bit about some other organizations you've worked with in the past that kind of led you to this point. Well, I started out as a, just as an engineer and being um, an extroverted person, which is unusual for engineers, that's kind of ended up leading me to eventually become director of engineering at a company. And then as a company grew, they actually needed more of a CTO type role and I became the CTO there. And that kind of naturally leads to people wanting you to be CTO at other companies. And I've kind of gone back and forth of being, you know, going to larger and somewhat smaller groups on that. I find that actually smaller companies are actually sometimes more fun because you're actually more involved with what's that you're actually building versus on larger companies. The mix of my duties is almost all business and you don't, it's much less involved what's actually happening day to day. Yeah, absolutely. I think that as the organizations get larger, the, the actual kind of strategic elements become more and more important in terms of the larger vision and you lose the actual experimentation on the ground playing with the engineering itself. Right. Yeah. And I chose wave because of the interesting things it's doing and I wanted to be more involved with it. So that's what made it attractive to me. Yeah. One of the things you just mentioned that I thought was a great insight worth maybe talking about is the idea of being an extrovert in the technology field and how that might adjust your career path or how you might work with that versus maybe the the kind of life of a coder or the life of an engineer specifically. You want to talk a little bit about that? Certainly. One of the things that's attractive to, to people that are uh, end up being engineers is that computers generally do exactly what you tell them to do. And that's, and that's nice. In, in many other circumstances in, the, in your life, things are much more gray. So what that means is that sometimes they're may not be as good at personal interdealings, but being extroverted, you have to be able to do that. The other part that's important too, is that mindset wise, as part of either director of engineering or a CTO type role, you do have to have your feet in both camps. I mean, you have to understand the business needs and understand the engineering needs, and you have to be able to talk to both groups and bridge that so that there's good understanding as to why the executive group wants this to happen and the engineering group needs this and communicate that back and forth with trust. Yeah. And I think there is a idea that being that kind of person who can verbally express a lot and kind of connect the dots for people allows for other people to maybe actually get down into the execution format. Yes, absolutely. Do you try and cultivate any of the people on your team or any of your teams over the course of time, have you, have you found people that you're like, Oh, I can cultivate this part of them and see and guide them more towards maybe management roles or more towards these kind of like higher level roles and versus maybe architect. 
Absolutely. One of the things that I do have done commonly and it's happened many times over the course of the year is you identify people because sometimes there are, as people go through their career, they may think there's a glass ceiling that if they don't become a manager, that they're kind of stuck. And certain people, based on their personalities and their desires, are actually not good at management. And sometimes you can give them experiments where they can try it so they can actually see for themselves if they're, if they're good or bad at it. But I have cultivated over the years a number of people that have become effectively tech directors and become CTOs since I've been around for a while. I think last time I just kind of took a quick count, I think I have peep, six people that have worked for me that are now CTOs of companies. And I still talk to them all and get along well. So I, I consider that a big plus. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I think that's something to be proud of, that you are able to mentor people into a position where they they can see this path that's a really amazing path. Yeah, and they've liked it. And they liked it. And that's an important part. And I have ended up discouraging some people from going into management as well. Sometimes, as I mentioned, you have to let them try it and let them fail a little bit. But it's a, you know, usually you can give them good reasons why. But nowadays, there's less of a glass ceiling for that. And there's good, better paths in both companies for individual contributors to keep going up and level and further without having to become a manager. Yeah, absolutely. I think over the course of the history of working in technology, I've always seen the ultimate leadership paths for the engineering groups being moving into the CTO positions or maybe VP of engineering, kind of more management oriented, emotional IQ oriented, or going down more of a path of a true deep level engineer into system architecture and, and, and really working on the, the tool sets themselves. What do you think are some of the qualities that you look for of people that should guide into one of those two positions? Well, a lot of it has to do with if you try to be introspective with yourself, what do you both what are you good at and what you like to do? Because you're going to have the passion for what you like to do. I will say that to be fair, even for myself, there are times where I've gone, God, I really wish I had, you know, gone down more of the individual uh, contributor rank or stayed there. Because to be fair, it's really fun. And I feel that if you don't do any of that, even as a CTO, then you're kind of, you're losing touch with what the rest of your group has to do. So I try to take little tiny projects that are not in the critical path and keep, keep, you know, abreast of all the technology and make sure I continue to do that. And when you go to choose it, it's really what it's about. I have talked to a number of the people that have gone through their career and some of them have become CTOs of company, partially because I think the company just needed one. They're like, Hey, you're our best engineer. You should become our CTO. And they turned out to be, they didn't like it. And they end up basically stepping back from it. And that's hard to do because sometimes that means stepping back from a salary or a position of leadership. But in the end of the day, they were happier when they did that. Yeah, that makes sense. I've um, noticed on your career path that you've worked a lot with, looks like MMO gaming. And then obviously now a wave, you're working with virtual concerts and it seems like there's a lot of kind of real-time live interaction built into the technology you've been building. It seems like an interesting area to work within and, and an area that has its own unique challenges to it. What are some differences of, let's take like an MMO game versus like a, a console game in, in terms of what you have to manage on the technology front? Well, it's quite a large difference. Um, for lack of, for whatever reason, it turns out to be, if I look back at it, every almost every... I think every game or every product I've worked on has been multiplayer. Even on the very first games that I did commercially that were flight simulators, I spend most of my time working on the multiplayer part of it. It's because no matter what you do in a single player game, the human element added into multiplayer just adds so much to the experience. But to be fair, it's hard. 
because on a particular, on a single game, you've got a computer effectively, whether it's a console or a PC or a phone, and it's instantly responsive as to what you do. If you call a function call, it returns immediately or as fast as it can. Whereas almost everything you have to do when it's multiplayer means that you have to send some communication data is packed into the smallest data you can, send it over the, the internet or networking, like back in the day, this network cable, and then have the other machine respond and come back and do it. And so even with the speed of light, which is pretty fast, there is latency that happens and you've got to try to make that experience as good as possible. And there's, we spend most of our time in multiplayer type scenarios covering up for the speed of light, which sounds funny, but that's what we, we're basically covering up for the fact that I'm telling a computer to do something and there's 300, 500, sometimes a thousand milliseconds of time before I can see that happen. And, uh, that's, I think that's, that's where the, the, the real, the real tricky, tricky part happens. That'd be a great title for your autobiography covering up for the speed of light. <laughs> there you go. That it darn speed an, of light. It, it, right. It is an interesting phrase, but I mean, that is the actual interaction, the, the speed of interaction and how close you can get to actual real time is a, is an important piece. And also like how much um, volume you can handle at once of real time interaction. I know that becomes an issue as well, especially in the space you're currently in. Definitely. And it still happens so, and it still affects what we do with Wave too, because we're, this Wave is creating interactive concerts. You're basically making a multiplayer concert and performer venue. I imagine that's really challenging. What's a what's an interesting challenge that you ran into at some point in your career that you faced that was exceptionally difficult? Uh, well, there's there's one particularly large one that I'll I talk about, and I won't mention any names to protect the innocent and the guilty. So at one point I was brought in to look at a, a really large project for a company, assess where it was, which is one of the things you have to do as a CTO or director of engineering and the likelihood of it actually ever launching. So the project was really large and it was just part of an acquisition made by the larger, uh, the, the parent company. And this project was a major part of the, the value of that acquisition. And immediately after acquisition, it was discovered it was in trouble. Because one of the things that happens when you do discovery on a company you're purchasing is that you really only have limited access. And to be fair, they're not likely to show you the warts of what's going on. And you just yeah. kind of brace yourself and hope that they're surmountable. Sometimes they're not. So I could come up with hundreds of specific things that need to be done to write the ship of this project. But it kind of boiled down to certain few steps, which I think were useful to share. One of them is identify exactly what you're trying to, to accomplish with the project. That means like being, make sure the parent company tells you this is exactly what we want from it. And then you have to start doing things such as you know, interview nearly everyone on the team, which is a good re way, reason to be extroverted because it's not easy to do. And you kind of try to suss out what's going on and try to get yeah. them to tell you like what's working, what's not working. It's like a detective story, right? It is. It is. And because some of them are going to feel guilty and they're going to be, they're not going to really want to tell you what's going on. So you've got, got to look for that too, but you need to, you also need to carefully evaluate any anger or finger pointing you hear from someone and try to turn that into really what, if they're angry about something, what is it that's not working? What is working? And turn that into, you're not about the person, but it's the process or the tech that needs to be looked at. So the goal is don't come in as the fixer, but you want to come in as like, Hey, I'm here to help us all succeed and try to get, you know, befriend them and be honest with them. And identify the helpers. It's almost like if there's any crisis, identify and find the helpers in the group that really want the project to succeed and listen to them. Again, 
use a block of salt and, you know, gauge whether or not, because, you know, what's passionate and what one person thinks is important may not really be important or it's important to them, but listen to them. Find the natural leaders that are in the project. And that's an example of where you can help mentor and support them. In this particular project, as we talked about earlier about bringing people up, I ended up identifying some people that end up becoming technical directors. They had the natural aptitude for mm-hmm. it. They wanted to do it, the drive, and I could use them to help, to be fair, help me go through and find more issues and fix them with it. So you also have to really be honest with the entire team and the company higher-ups about where things are. You have to establish the trust between the two groups. Well, sometimes there isn't one. And try to come up with a plan to address any shortcomings because you don't want to go to the higher-up team and go, here's this huge bag of problems. See ya. You want to go like, hey, here's a big bag of problems and here's where we think some solutions. Yeah. Yes. And here's some solutions and here's some options. And some of these are painful, but I want to tell you that we thought about it thoroughly and try to bring that, get that trust up because no matter what did happen before, there's always tendency for any group that's involved in that to be kind of antagonistic against each other and be want to blame somebody for it. Go, look, it doesn't really matter. You don't have a time machine. You can't go back. What you need to do is make a plan to go forward. So if you give them the options to succeed, and if you believe you can do it, tell them, but also ask for, here's what we actually need to succeed and give them those balances. And if, well, you, and, do, and, and if you can do that, and this I'm saying this quickly, this is not yeah. a simple or a quick process. If you can do that's the beginnings of how you actually correct the project, because coming in, you don't want to fire everybody unless the team, unless some, for some reason, the team is just ridiculously bad, which is unlikely it is. You can usually do it. Like even on this huge project, we, I don't think we let anybody go at the end. It was maybe out of hundreds of people, it was maybe a couple of people end up leaving for it, but it just needed needed better direction. Yeah. We do, we do a lot of diligence at our organization as well. So we'll be a third-party diligence organization coming in and assessing acquisitions or investments, things like that. And one of the things that we see, and I know some of the partners I work with on this regularly, is people have very different perspectives of a problem and all of them are real, but like trying to define the perspective adjustment that's actually going to make the most impact in the organization is some of the art of that process. Absolutely. And you were correct that they'll have different perspectives on it. But at the end of the day, it is possible to bridge those gaps and explain to the engineering team, the executive group is not a bunch of idiots. I may think they are, right? But here's what actually is driving them. Here are the pressures they are under. And so I'm sorry. That's what happens. The business leaders have pressures that you don't normally have to deal with. And the engineers have, have pressures that the executive team doesn't have to deal with. But if you can communicate them, you can help a lot. Yeah. And I think this goes to the concept of leading through change, right? Especially in these yes. kind of um, areas where there is like a major change happening in a case like you're talking about. But in technology leadership, there's constant change. Things are iterating like crazy, especially at startup environments. Do you find that you have to do more minor versions of this, even through adjustments and sprints and, and the way that you guys are, are moving on, pivoting on the product, even at a wave or any of the ones oh. that you worked at? Oh, absolutely. Now, coming into a new project where people have adversarial groups is one thing. But if you're coming into, a, hopefully, a company where everybody is, is gets along, you still have to do all these things. Because even in that scenario... You have to, things change enough that you go, well, look, we should pivot out of not doing this part. Like this should have, we, we need to reprioritize. And there'll be groups that have 
spent a lot of time and energy and worked on something and they'll be really in love with what they've done and they don't really want to put it down, even if it makes sense. So you have to kind of manage that as well. It's like, look, at the end of the day, we're trying to make this product. And if we have to put this on back on the backlog and take this off, here's why we're doing it. And the best, but I found that the best companies, one of the things I really like working at Wave is that the communication is really good and that we actually can talk to people. Now, sometimes it takes more time to go like, I'm going to explain you why we have to do this versus just do it, right? But at the end of the day, if you tell someone and you explain to them why you're doing it, they're learning. And so they will make better judgments themselves, which means that you have to do less correcting. Yeah, that's a really good point. All right. Thank you. That was a great overview of some of the challenges and experiences you've had as being a CTO and also evaluating things and helping people through change. It's amazing. We're now going to jump into your top five tips on leadership. I'm excited to hear these. I think you have a lot of great perspective in these really interesting environments. Matt has a unique technical perspective on creating applications that involve group interaction. Because of this, I appreciated how much he displays the importance of considering the unpredictability of humans. Additionally, he reminds us that part of leadership is being open to the many different perspectives that exist on teams. One of the true skill sets of a CTO is hearing all of the different sides and making an assessment as to which is the most applicable in the current scenario. Even more than that, Matt knows that everyone's experience and feedback is relevant even if it sometimes feels different than your own current take on things. So without further ado, let's jump in. What's your tip number one for us? Okay, so my tips are about leadership, but it's more about how to do leadership on big online projects. Things awesome. that people just don't tend to think about. Great. So the first one is plan for success. Plan for how people are going to start using your product from the initial sign-up all the way to getting into it and look for the weak spots. What parts of that can you control and what don't you control? Pick an expected number of users and plan for five times that load and think about what's going to break. Put in ways to limit that workload if necessary, because what you really want to do is have anything work fail gracefully and better to have a good experience for less folks than a crappy experience for everybody. This is an amazing tip. Having worked on projects like what you're talking about, and for anyone that is working on projects like this that might be listening, this is a really important thing. And where I've seen it really play out is in terms of handling handling load across servers or planning for enough people to be able to access different different experiences simultaneously, like planning for the largest number possible because you really don't know, right? And what happens when you hit it. Right. Exactly. And even then, you may still go beyond that. Sometimes things surprise you. They always often, do. Often they do, yeah. Uh, anyway, I love that tip. It's a great tip. How about tip number two? Okay, so the uh, counterpoint to that one is plan for failure. Test what happens when <laughs> systems don't work. What happens when a telemetry or a database call takes too long or doesn't return? Is it blocking? What is the user experience? What is the recovery? Is there one? Part of the problem is that almost all code systems people write, they expect everything to just work when you make like, a rest call. What happens if that rest call doesn't come back? Does it hang the whole thing? Things like this, because those things will happen. And that's exactly, and I've done, I've done things even including gone through and like ripped out network cables on servers while we're doing a load test, see what happens. 
just to make sure wow. it's like, what's going to happen? Because that's the best way. And that practicing for failure is one of the things that will help save you. Because when you have problems that will launch your product, you don't want to have thousands of problems. You can handle a few, but you can't handle a thousand. Like to jokingly use the wave analogy, if you have some waves that are hitting you, it's fine. But if you have a tsunami that knocks you over and drives your head into the sand, you're not going to be happy. Do you think that when you're making a list of uh, potential risks for a project, you know, the potential failures that could happen, do you kind of have to curate the top most important ones or, or do you cover as deep as you can go with the resources that you have? Oh, you definitely have to balance the top ones because those are the ones that are likely to hit you, right? But I tend to curate them by impact and also by control, span of control. If you have systems you've all built, hopefully you can test them. But if you have a dependency on a third-party system, what do you do if that doesn't work? Because you have no way to correct that. And if for the sake of argument, you can't get them on the ho- on the phone or on, or on Slack to, to fix something, what are you going to do? Yep. Makes sense. All right. Thank you. How about tip number three? All right. Tip number three is plan to spread the load. So one of the ways you kind of help yourself while doing this is think about ways to try to slow big spikes or to try to socially engineer them to not happen. You can do that through pre-sales that allow pre-signup when there's less people in there. You can convert beta testers to real users. They don't have to go through the whole flow again. There's just lots of ways you can socially engineer it because it's very exciting to go, I'll say we announced this and immediately this is available, but that's terrible for load. And you really don't want it to build for such huge spikes if you can help it. So the best way to do it is to try to, if you can, you've got to work with marketing on this because they love the big events, but you've got to try to get them to spread the load out. Yeah, it's a really good point because what I've found is a lot of business people want the biggest population possible which is understandable because that is kind of the main KPI for success. And then a lot of times the system can only handle some fraction of that load. And so I think there's a lot in the communication between the business and the tech as to what the expectations are and hopes are for business and the realities for the tech. All right. Tip number four. This one's I call test for crappy internet access. (laughs) <laughs> I like it already. So, so if you live in a large metropolitan area, which a lot of our us tech folk do, you likely have better internet than most of the United States. You need to test systems if the internet, what it's like if it's slow. What if you have even down to dial up or just bad connections or, or futzed connections? It's amazing how the experience can change. And in many times, things will actually literally break just because your latency is too high, even during a login process. You'll get things that time out. But of course, when you're doing it in your development environment, it all works perfectly. And uh, you need to do this on a continuous basis. There, actually, I was, uh, a quick, quick story of this. We actually had a thing way back in the day where we were doing a game that actually was played a lot in the armed services in Iraq by the our U.S. Army. And they couldn't log in because of like a 40 millisecond addition to the login process that we couldn't mm-hmm. reproduce until we artificially mm-hmm. put it in there and we found it. Yeah. And also figuring out those edge cases is really interesting, right? Working with your actual customers to hear, tell me exactly how you're experiencing this. We we had a similar thing early in the days of mobile gaming at a company I was working with, with subways. We couldn't figure out why this kept happening and, and we kept having these huge breaks in major cities with subways. And then we realized what it was. Yeah. Then you can't get good access all the time in every yeah. place you are in the subway. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. And finally, tip number five. 
this is commonly found, but I call this don't trust dev environments. Now, what I mean by this is development versus production environments. Yeah, um, they, of, they often do not reflect the production capability of your load. Now, what you'll be told when you're using a dev environment, if you do a load test, is that, well, oh, that's normal, that fails. Oh, the real system is amazing. It has unlimited capabilities. It will never, you won't have any problems, believe me. But they, they're lying. Don't believe those promises. Because if things fail on load test devs, there will be tip over points that will still fail. Almost every time that I've done, we've done things where we've had to use a development environment. When it goes to the production environment, A, the environment has changed. Tip over points change, like I mentioned, or this thing still don't, don't scale like they said they would. So trust, but verify. Yeah. And that, that can be hard to recreate those environments to, to get the, the real perspective on it. And a lot of times people don't want to make those investments until there's live environments. So yeah. it's expensive, like you spot. said. Yeah. yeah expensive. Yeah. Is expensive, yeah, and we see it a lot. Like in trying to create, like you said, real time populations coming into something. Also, just load balancing across or load testing across a whole series of things, and then and investing in the balancing process within that. So it's always getting the business to understand that until they actually see the emergency happen, and then it makes sense. Right then, oh yeah, we should invest. Exactly. You mentioned to me before we before we started this so you might have a bonus tip as well and i wanted to offer that see if you'd like to talk about that sure this one's called your development machines are from the future <laughs> um, awesome if, if you make a product that must run a consume on a consumer machine like a game for example unless it's a console which is the same for everyone your development machines are always the most powerful things that your company can afford to buy you because they want your development speed to be fast but it does mean is that it's so much more powerful than an average user that every bit of experience you create or build or optimization you make may not apply to them. That's why I say they're like from the future. Mm -hmm. So yeah. it's, it's yeah. really important that you specify what a low-end system is, acquire them, have engineers work on them as well as QA and, and make that part of your test plan because it's the only way to optimize that and get QA to test it right and get a pass fail on those projects and things to actually make it so they'll have a good experience. Otherwise, it'll only work on the highest end systems. This is a really subtle kind of nuanced perspective on how to foresee issues in the future that if you've done it enough times, you're like, oh, of course, we, we're going to do that right up front because that will prevent so many things. But it's a great tip for people who might be getting started early in their career and thinking about, okay, how do I prepare and it will circumvent a lot of things if you think like this. I've had times when I've been personally using like uh, the Intel analyzer and optimizing a very serious routine to make us, you know, 200 orcs be able to be on the screen at one time. And I'm like, yes, I made these changes and I got three milliseconds off the frame. And it actually is slower on slower machines. Yeah. <laughs> the right. on. Right. That, that change worked against you. Yeah. Yes. This is amazing. Well, Thank you for the amazing tips. Thanks for the, the rundown today. And I really love talking about the way that you build technology for people who are coming together in large group environments and thinking about multiple humans existing within games, within concerts, within areas that they normally may not have existed in the past. Cause these are, you're really blazing new trails for the way this works. Thank you. Yeah, it was really exciting to have you here today. Thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you soon. I really liked how Matt's tips specifically take into account the important approaches to working with online interactive communities. 
whether games or concert platforms, products that involve quick bursting scale and unpredictable risk factors require leaders to rethink and reapproach problems that might traditionally be solved. The nuance I appreciated most was how he put preparation into the driver's seat and made mitigating common issues a part of the actual development process.